Hi there, and welcome to a new episode of Impact Talks. Today we have Stephen Kronkota with us. He's a former chief marketing and creative officer at companies like Versace, Warner Brothers, Sony Pictures, and so on. There's a lot we can tell about your story. In general, I'm super happy that we're uh, finally doing this. Last time we talked was a couple of months ago. Uh, since then, we've been moving offices, so I myself haven't recorded a podcast in a while. So this is the first one after a long hiatus. Super happy to have you on. Please introduce yourself. Where can the people know you from? So hello, and I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And yes, it's nice to have finally connected uh, during some crazy times for everyone in the world. I am, as you mentioned, um, my career has been primarily in two industries, um, fashion and luxury in Europe and media and entertainment in the US. And some of those companies are Warner Brothers, uh, Sony Pictures, Versace, uh, Condé Nast, uh, publications in New York, etc. Great. I think one of the most common questions that I keep getting is, do you actually need to have studied marketing uh, or creative types of uh, education in order to do the job that you've had for such a long time? What did you study? I, I studied, I got a bachelor's degree in economics and a bachelor's degree in political science. So I did not um, study marketing uh, in particular. And to answer your question, I don't believe it's necessary. I think um, any kind of general liberal arts or other or even a, a technical field um, is appropriate and qualifies you to be a marketing or a creative person. I think it's more about your interests, your instincts, and, um, and as we'll discuss a little bit later, I think how you live your day-to-day -day life that can make you a fantastic marketer or creative. What do you think, was it worth, worth it for you to go to university? What are some of the skills that you learned in your young years that have helped you throughout your career nowadays? Huh, was it worth it? I have, um, I've wondered that myself actually, and, and I don't have kids, but I wondered, I've got lots of friends with kids who are now in their teenage and 20 something years. And um, they, they ask me to maybe give some advice or mentorship to their kids as they're um, getting ready to prepare themselves for a professional life. Look, I certainly think that a college education and a college degree, undergraduate, is always a good idea. Um, simply because it will be, wherever you went to school and whatever you studied, there will simply be too many doors that are closed to you if you don't get one. Um, do I think necessarily, in my personal opinion, do you need to go to the most expensive school or to an Ivy League college in the States or Oxford, Cambridge in, in the UK, et cetera, et cetera, and the equivalents? Um, in my personal opinion, no. And having hired and worked with hundreds or thousands of employees over my career, I can't say I see a direct correlation between a quote-unquote prestige university or, um, you know, the, the, a more standard university, state school, etc., um, to 
excellence in the candidate. Um, but I think, as I said, I think it's, um, and it's not required to have that specific area of study during college. To me, college is more about a socialization process, a maturation process, um, a, a learning to follow through on deadlines, um, the ability to prioritize in your life, um, who and what you're going to be as an adult, the kind of person you're going to become. All of those things, I think, are really what college is about. Because, for instance, I studied calculus in college and learned the, how to calculate the area of a curve rotating in space. And I can assure you that in all those years since I graduated, I have never once applied the practice of how to calculate the area of a curve rotating in space. So it's a, you know, if I did it all over again, I would probably study literature and music and art and history because it's a luxury to have four years to spend on those um, beautiful subjects that you'll carry on through your life. So in short, if you don't pay crazy amounts and just socialize, network throughout those years and get as, as much experience as you possibly can. I, I, I think that that's a good summary. I, I think I would agree, actually, if you go into these spaces like marketing, uh, obviously in my uh, area, it'd be more video events, that type of stuff. I, I would probably agree. Although I studied law, so I have to say law has helped me a ton, especially when we were scaling to different countries. Um, one of the things you mentioned, which is super interesting to me, I can imagine also to the audience, is uh, you said you were hiring marketeers throughout your career uh, or just hiring people in your team. Could you maybe elaborate more what you look for if it's not education? Um, what, what were some of the things that you know pop up in the hiring process that give you indication that this person could be really good at what they do? Um, well, I, I, you know, I'm going to stick to my two. I mean, I, I also worked a little bit in wine and spirits and a couple of other categories, but I'm going to speak for this conversation, speak, uh, in general in the fashion and luxury category, fashion, luxury, retail, I would say, and media and entertainment. And I would say both of those careers, both of those industries, um, tend to be highly sought after, uh, both you know, both entertainment and fashion are thought to be kind of glamorous, sexy industries. Um, so I, first of all, I feel very fortunate to have had a career in the two of them. But I would also say lots of people will walk in uh, in their interview and talk about how much they love fashion or how much they love entertainment. And, you know, my answer to that is who doesn't? Uh, you know, it's a, you sort of so so being be, loving to shop or loving to read Vogue or, you know, spending all the all your uh, days on Netflix is not uh, de facto a qualification to be um, in to work in that industry. I think one thing is, um, you know, are you a student of pop culture? Um, do you do you kind of go through life paying attention to um, not only what's hip and hot now, but what's emerging, um, what's out there on the horizon? 
Do you pay attention to, um, are you a student of people? Um, do you watch people? Are you interested in how people make choices in their lives? Um, what, what they prioritize, where they go to get their information, um, their inspiration, um, what excites people, what, what makes a trend. Um, when something starts to become, when something starts to get across the radar of the public, why? Why did that break through the clutter versus something else? So I think it's, you know, to, to, to talk to a potential employer about, um, are you observing these kinds of things? Are you thinking about these kinds of things? Because, again, entertainment, fashion, I mean, look, these days, every category is overcrowded. Um, there's too much clutter. There's too much information. There's too much messaging. None of us can wade through it all. We're, we're all overstimulated. So for something to break through, especially a new or emergent brand, um, there's really got to be um, a very clear raison d'etre. <laughs> Why does it exist? How is it different? How is it better? Why do you deserve my attention? Etc. Etc. And I'm always looking for people who who look for things like that and think that way, frankly. Because if they do, as a young adult, uh, they probably have the right stuff to succeed. Do you find that as you progress through your career, you're hiring more and more, especially nowadays, younger generation people? Is there, I, I'm just kind of looking at what the industry is doing and I have a feeling that more and more 20 year olds are getting hired rather than I know 40 or 50 year olds uh, when it comes to marketing and stuff like that. Do you find you are caught in the same thing or do you find that there's value in each age category or how do you handle it? Well, um, as an executive who hires people, I, I will never be ageist or sexist or any other ist. Um, we, you know, I, I, I'm looking for qualified, interesting, interested people um, in any group. And I think if I walk into a conference room um, and look around a room and it's a lot of people who look like me making decisions, um, and, and sadly, most executives in the world look like me, um, meaning um, white middle-aged guys, um, you know, who probably have similar backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, that's a problem. That's a problem in a modern multicultural world that we live in. So if I don't have people of color sitting around the table, if I don't have people of different age groups sitting around the table, and it's a bunch of, frankly, sorry, middle-aged white guys, um, it indicates that this is a company that's not, not preparing correctly for the future. So I like a mix in general, and I also like a mix not only because the population is a mix, um, and it's important to have different, different life realities in the room. Um, but I also want to mix because I don't, you know, a bunch of suits um, sitting around coming up, with, we're not going to be able to come up with the best answers 
to the challenges and problems of, of modern business and modern life. So it's great to have a diversity of opinion. Um, not everybody nodding their heads in agreement, but actually people saying, I hear you, but how about this? Or what I'm seeing, or from where, where I come from, um, these sorts of things are important and, and discussed. So that's kind of what I'm, what I'm looking for um, when, I'm, when I'm recruiting. So in short, I guess what you're looking for is always a representation of the population in your team when you're, especially when you're, I can imagine building campaigns or just thinking about a possible customer, just different life experiences, like you said, is what you're looking for in that brainstorming phase. True. And I don't know if you heard the story about Beyonce and her contract with Reebok, um, but but she ended up going for a meeting. She had a Reebok was pitching her business or wanted her to become, you know, to work with them to um, create Beyonce collection for for Reebok. Um, and if it's not OK to mention brand names, feel free to delete this. <laughs> Uh, but but she walked in, and again, it was sort of what I was describing as far as the usual suspects around the room. It was, all I'll say is, it wasn't multicultural. Uh, and this was a story that got reported in the news. This isn't just so something somebody told me. Um, and Beyonce said at the end of the meeting, um, how could I feel comfortable working with you when you don't have anybody in this room who's lived a life like mine and has a background like mine, how can you possibly expect to understand my brand and what I'm trying to achieve when, when there's nobody who looks like me in the room? So I just think it's good. It's a, that's a good anecdote for everybody to remember. You know, don't just hire people who look like you and who you, you know, and who seem like the kinds of people you went to school with or who were in your fraternity um look for people who are different from you and had a different life from you and they they will probably bring invaluable perspective to the table so then turning that back to the person who wants to get hired especially in this climate a lot of people want to further their career um so you'd advise them to share more stories um where they show that they have kind of a, a finger on the pulse of society where they know what the trends are and stuff like that? Or would you also ask of their achievements? And if so, what type of achievements are you looking for? So these days, um, storytelling has become a cliche, but storytelling is branding. You know, it used to be um, not too long ago that companies would completely control their message and a few times a year, depending on the industry, they would come out with their new advertising campaign that their advertising agency had worked on. And they would issue press releases or other announcements about their business. And, and that would be it. You, the consumer, were expected to sit there, watch it or read it, and then, you know, respond. Ideally, go out and buy their product as a result. Well, we all know um, and I'm sure many, many, many of your past speakers and guests have talked about how that is no longer the world order. Um, and it is a two-week 
two-way conversation and people do not just want to accept um, the boilerplate copy that you want to send to them and have them swallow. Um, people, people want to challenge you. So we've discussed obviously people who want to get hired, also how you've been hiring. Seems very similar to actually what we do. So that's nice to hear. Um, how did it all start for you though? Storytelling, everything, all, finding out about diversity. I can imagine that when you started this, you were not thinking like that. Um, I, I tend to say I learned from stories. Um, are there stories that stand out in your career that made you realize that diversity is important when brainstorming, that um, storytelling and seeing how well people are connected to society um, are relevant, you know, for hires? What are some of the stories that stand out? Well, I think for me, you know, early in my career, I um, got into advertising. And uh, very early on in my career, which, by the way, um, you know, I haven't been in advertising for a while, but advertising used to be a great place to um, cut your teeth. And I will say advertising, marketing, digital agencies. It's, I think, uh, a great place to begin your career or, or spend an early year or two. Um, you learn a lot in that agency. First of all, you, you learn about um, a client and a client's business and helping a client grow their business. Um, but I said, what I liked about advertising, what I like about marketing in general is, as I mentioned, I came with an economics degree. And, um, but I knew I didn't want to do um, a strictly finance or, or a very um, conservative kind of corporate culture. I knew I wanted to work in creative businesses. Um, so that's why I ended up in entertainment or fashion. Advertising is a great balance of kind of the science and the art. And, and the reason I bring it up is because advertising is where I started um, a little bit into my career, started hiring people. And I knew when I would hire maybe a, a single mother, um, she, she was having a very different life experience than I was. Or when I hired a person of color, um, they too often had had a different kind of upbringing, um, a different kind of peer group, maybe a different kind of cultural menu than I, than I had. And I would listen to them and watch them as we sat around um, in meetings. And pretty quickly, I realized they were bringing a perspective that I didn't own. Um, they owned it based on their own life's reality. And so having a table that was more diverse um, all, almost always yielded. And again, it, 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 it could simply be a single mom who had two kids at home, but was having to make, you know, her busy life work somehow. And a lot of the way she'd consume media, or, and when I say single mom, this can also apply to a single dad who's, got, who's raising a family at home and trying to have a career. But they would talk about considerations, things that were important, priorities, values, um, that helped me, frankly, grow up, um, that helped me see the world through their eyes. And, and I think in business, 
if you've got people in your in your peer group who are helping you see things through different people's eyes, helping you understand other people's priorities and perspectives, it's going to make you better in your job. So when I was looking through your history, I saw that you pretty much started off in the creative industry. And like you said, all these experiences within those industries gave you kind of the attitude you have today. Um, I guess my question is, how did you end up getting to some of these companies? Could you share some stories, um, especially like I saw in the beginning, very early on in your career, I, I think you got to Warner Brothers. Yeah. How, how did you get in there? How did you achieve that? Yeah. So I, I jokingly say that I've, I've never been qualified for any of the jobs I've gotten. Um, and I'm only, I'm only slightly being facetious. Um, I, I would say in general, um, when we were talking a little about interviews and how to make an impression with people, um, I think in some cases, I, I know my interviews went, went well because I was definitely not the likeliest candidate for the job. And, and to, you know, and I'll give a couple of very specific examples. Um, I, I was part of a, in my career, I've, I've worked on a couple of brand launches and I um, was working with, at Condé Nast in New York um, which is the company that, as, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, Condé Nast owns Vogue, Vanity Fair, Architectural Digest, GQ, um, a lot of the best media brands out there in the world. Many more, but those are just a few, Wired, et cetera, et cetera. So, and I, frankly, um, those days, magazines were still <laughs> a thing. Um, they hadn't been sort of destroyed by digital media yet. And I loved magazines. I mean, I'm a, I'm kind of a voracious reader, um, and I, and and so I I read multiple newspapers a day, and I loved reading magazines in lots of different categories, and and I don't, you know, I'm one person who thinks we we lost something when we when magazines left our lives and became less popular. But anyway, I was a magazineaholic and I read fashion magazines and home design magazines and business magazines and et cetera, lots of different, you know, gardening magazines. And I loved it because I I would tell people I think I think reading magazines helped make me successful in my job. Um, and I won't go into all the reasons, but I think I think um, when you pay attention to that stuff and you're constantly consuming, you can't help but get smarter about a subject and, and, and start to get a sixth sense about what pe where people are gravitating to and why. So anyway, um, when I was invited to go meet people at Condé Nast and they were about to launch a new men's kind of fashion and lifestyle magazine called Details, um, I jumped because I was, I was just very excited. And it so happened that the editor Condé Nast had hired from Details was coming from, to New York from London. And he had created two magazines in London called Arena and The Face. And those were, even though I was an American living in America, um, 
I had always, I mean, I traveled to London and Europe a few times. I loved Arena and The Face. And they were much, I think, grittier and cooler than any American magazine. So when I found out that the editor had come from Arena and The Face in London, I was able to kind of be conversant about those magazines, even though I was a young adult in New York. And um, I ended up getting that job and being part of the launch team for details. But I would, and, and I would also say, um, subsequent to that, um, I was invited. We, we launched Details in New York. Details turned out to be one of the fastest growing new magazines um, of that kind of decade. Um, we, I would say, we really struck a chord. You know, Condé Nast is the company that has GQ. Um, with Details, we were not trying to make another GQ. We were not trying to make another Esquire. We were not trying to do Sports Illustrated or Playboy or any of the other men's magazines of the time. We really believed young people, young men in particular, were not being reflected in the media. Um, their sensibilities, their tastes, their priorities were completely different than what, say, GQ was about. And um, with details, we really tried to tap into the zeitgeist of what it was to be an 18 to 34-year-old guy. But details was very dual, actually. A lot of women were read details. It turned out to be very successful with young women as well. Um, but we ended up, um, we ended up really um, striking a sweet spot in the culture because details was, um, was not about you know, how to have a great career and, and um, find an expensive whiskey and um, work at the same job your whole life like your father did and get a, you know, retire and, and go buy a condo in Boca. I mean, young guys were not, did not want to be their fathers. Um, they weren't looking for this, you know, they, they weren't wondering, you know, oh, what, what, what Cuban cigar should I be buying? What, what top, what shelf whiskey should I be those were the days of kind of um, Nirvana and grunge and Seattle. And young guys were starting to say, for thing, because of things that had happened in society, young guys, young women were saying, I don't want the same life my parents had. Like, I don't want to um, go to college, get a job, get married, have three kids, move to the suburbs, um, and work for a that same company my whole life or just climb the corporate ladder. That's not to say, I'm, I'm making sweeping generalizations, obviously. That's not to say nobody wants those things. That's not to say those things are bad. But as we can see, going up to today, um, there were, if you look at millennials and, and Gen Y and other, other groups, people's priorities and values have changed. So just being able to consume lots of things, keep buying bigger and bigger houses, um, keep buying bigger and more expensive cars, not everybody wants to get on that gerbil wheel. And, and so details began to speak that way to a different kind of person. And to your question, you know, how did I end up at Warner Brothers? Well, I first, um, while we were at details and while details was kind of rocking, rolling, growing every single issue and in defiance of a lot of people's expectations. Um, and we were 
filling the book with advertisers, um, people were beginning to appreciate why we were different and that we were different. I got a call from a headhunter to go meet Ted Turner um, in Atlanta. And Ted Turner is, for people who don't know the name, um, Ted Turner is kind of one of the grandfathers or godfathers of cable television. Um, Ted Turner created CNN, so he created cable news. Um, Americans will know TBS, TNT, um, headline news. Ted was really a genius and a visionary and a pioneer in the television business. And so, um, but Ted had bought the world's largest library of animation and wanted to turn it into a television network. And so I was asked to come out. Um, a, a recruiter called me and asked if I would go out and meet Ted to talk about becoming the senior vice president, creative director of this new television channel called Cartoon Network. And this was one of those examples when I did not come from TV. <laughs> I was there in New York working in a magazine. Um, I did not ever work at a TV network. But um, but I got the interview, and, and some people will know that Ted T Turner mar was married to Jane Fonda, the actress, for years. So this is when Jane was out in Atlanta and went out and met them uh, to talk about this role of the Cartoon Network. I had no TV experience to talk to them about. Um, but Ted Turner, um, similar to Donatella Versace, a later interview interview of mine, um, they were not people who were looking to hire the usual suspects. Um, these were people you will encounter, you get lucky enough sometimes to meet people who are looking for unusual suspects, not people who've just said, look, I've worked at 15 other television networks or TV channels, um, might as well come work at yours. No, they they, Ted's attitude, as other bosses in my career, their attitude has been, we can teach you this business. We can teach you everything you need to know about TV um, in a matter of months. We want to know how you think. We want to know how you solve problems. Um, we want to know what you think about brands. Um, we want to know um, what you think is is coming on the horizon out there in media and entertainment, et cetera, et cetera. And my conversations with those people were often not a 30-minute or 45 typical interview, first interview. Um, they might be an hour, two hours, three-hour conversations about lots of topics. And at the end, if you're lucky, um, they conclude that they like the way you think and that you seem to have a good balance of business um, and creative. And, and they like to hear the way you discuss society and culture and this moment in time and what's happening out there and how to make sense of it. So, and, and when you asked, um, sorry to get so long in go, getting to Warner Brothers, but, but we launched, we launched Cartoon. I got the job. I left Condé Nast. I moved to Atlanta. L luckily, happily, uh, you know, a, a good fortune smiled on me, and I did get the job. I was part of the launch team of Cartoon Network. Um, 
we did launch it in the U.S. Um, to great success, launched it around the world to even more success. Um, and after, I would say, four, four and a half years of working for TED in Atlanta on Cartoon Network, um, with my job then becoming global, um, Warner Brothers came along and bought the company from Ted Turner because Warner Brothers um, had their own animated properties. We at Cartoon Network launched with Scooby-Doo, the Flintstones, the Jetsons, um, Huckleberry Hound, Yogi Bear, etc. A lot of what you might call vintage or baby boomer cartoons. Um, we ended up making a lot of new hits, but we didn't launch with a lot of the, you know, we didn't have Ren and Stimpy. We didn't have Beavis and Butthead. Those were all on other channels. We had retro cartoons, which we had to make seem cool and modern for the times. And happily, it seems we did. So anyway, Warner Brothers had um, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and all the Looney Tunes. And they had their own uh, cartoon channel called Kids WB. And with all of their animation. And they watched Cartoon Network come out of the gate. And I will say, you know, when I got the job at Cartoon Network and I was talking to friends in New York and I was saying, you know, at Condé Nast or whatever, and I was saying, you know, I've gotten offered, offered this job by Ted Turner and he wants to make a network that's all cartoons, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Almost everybody I told that to said, no, do not go. That thing is going to bomb. Um, because, really? well, until it happened, a lot of people were saying, okay, nobody wants to watch cartoons all day, or there are enough cartoons on TV on Saturday morning, or there's already Nickelodeon, or there's already Kids WB. Who, you know, who needs more cartoons? And, you know, Scooby-Doo and the Jetsons, really, you know, they're so dated. So I really, you know, very few people actually said to me, fantastic, take the job. Um, so you had to see, and oftentimes, you know, when you're, when you're getting an offer to go work at a startup or a new company, they don't have a track record. You know, maybe the people involved do, or maybe they don't. Um, but you've got to believe in a, in a vision and a mission. And if the, and if the people you're interviewing with can't, can't communicate a vision to you that gets you excited, that you can see in front of your eyes, that you get, that gives you a little tingle or that you can say, okay, that's a no brainer. Uh, uh, of course there's a need for that. Of course there's a market for that. Why has nobody thought of this or, your take on it is really distinctive and unusual and hooky and sticky. Um, so I could see what Cartoon Network would be, and I, and I wanted to work in TV, and I couldn't believe I was getting this opportunity. Um, I couldn't believe it was from Ted Turner. So I jumped, and Warner Brothers um, came along and was watching us succeed, and they were very interested in what we were doing in Atlanta with Cartoon Network um, and how we were kind of rolling out from country to country and going to India and Latin America and, and China, um, always succeeding. Um, 
and frankly, having more success than Warner Brothers was, which was a shocker, um, even beating Nickelodeon in a lot of markets. And so they bought the company from Ted. Um, and what they, what Warner Brothers could do that Ted Turner couldn't do, Ted Turner, Turner was um, a media company. It was a television company, a great one. Um, but that's what we did. We transmitted TV signals. Um, Warner Brothers um, had movies, um, had uh, uh, shop and shops. They had the Warner Brothers stores. They had publishing. Um, they had a music division. Warner Brothers had the potential to take Cartoon Network from television into all those other categories and turn these things into lifestyle brands. And so that, um, soon after Warner Brothers bought the company from Ted, that became my job, is the Warner Brothers executive sat down with me and said, we would like you, now that you've done the TV part of this, we'd like you to help us exploit or grow the business, grow the brand in all these other categories and do movies and books and comics and magazines and, and school supplies and kids clothing and et cetera, et cetera. Maybe even Cartoon Network amusement parks, and which we ended up doing. So I made the jump to the movie studio in Los Angeles because of my experience with Ted Turner, because I said yes to that job that my friends said to say no to. Um, and we ended up doing all of those categories. I mean, it ended up becoming Cartoon Network and all the sub-brands like the Powerpuff Girls and Scooby-Doo and all those. They all became the Flintstones. They all became, as I'm sure you know, um, movies and licensed clothing lines and food products and, um, you know, bath mats and shower curtains and everything. And, and now it is actually one of the biggest revenue streams at Warner Brothers, which, which then became Time Warner. So it was a good acquisition on their part. Um, Ted Turner had been a genius with his vision, um, but that was how I um, ended up um, parlaying um, a job in a job early in my career in magazines into somebody who could turn that into um, launching new media brands and businesses. And, and by the way, I'll say one other thing. Um, I never present myself, I've never presented myself as I'm a fashion guy or I'm a TV guy or I'm because I think, you know, um, that, that narrows um, the, the, playing field for you. Bring a skill set. Bring a skill set, a talent, um, the ability to solve problems, the ability to grow businesses, what the ability to have unusual ideas. But, but you know, it, it, it's very limiting to just say, and my career has been multi-industries. I never wanted to stay in one industry. Or, I mean, I'm fortunate now. I didn't just stay in magazines my whole career. Um, but I, you know, I love brands. I love popular culture. I love lifestyle. I love aspirational lifestyle. So I've always been more of that kind of person rather than I can do one thing and it's all I've ever done. What you just said is so interesting um, because I, obviously I grew up with all these brands that you've been mentioning. So it's just fascinating. Um, you've definitely covered, I would say, the general parts of how you went through your career and those fascinating things. 
we haven't even come close to covering the fashion part, but um, I we have the time, and so I almost want to ask, um, and I can imagine others are fascinated to find out, at least I am, you, you, you kind of laid out the general lines, but can right. you maybe zoom in and actually go a bit deeper? Because the thing that makes it interesting for me is you really did not have any experience, but yet somehow you were interesting to be hired and, and then you somehow launched brands. So my question is like, how, how can you start with detail magazine and like how you started it? So, um, well, uh, first I will say, um, it, it, in any of these jobs, it has not been only me, um, it far from it. So I would say I have been very lucky, not only to have, um, great visionary bosses who hired me and nurtured me, but I've also had amazing peers, super talented peers, um, who have run their, their individual respective businesses and departments who've been great. And I've also hired fantastic people who've worked for me and a lot of them have gone on to have great careers of their own and they continue to do so. And I would say being a mentor and a, and a boss to those people has been one of my biggest satisfactions. Maybe, maybe, um, did you want to interrupt? No, I didn't want to interrupt. I guess the the question is, yes, of course you had different uh, people, but like, what are, were the nitty gritties of, you know, first day on the job as I, I'm assuming launching this new brand as Detail Magazine, like, what are your instructions coming from your boss? And like, yeah. I can't even imagine uh, because of the scale you operated at, what your day to day was even looking like. Right. Um, well, so here's what I would say. Um, I, I, I know you want to get into the nitty gritty, but, but before you get into the nitty gritty, I think I go back to just one thing, which is um, the vision. So I think in, in details, you know, there's that old Apple ad, think different. And I would say, you know, not to be hackneyed, I would say for people in marketing and creativity, do think different. Um, and, and be different. Differentiation is everything in a crowded marketplace. And, and you know, when, you, when I watch TV these days, and even though I live in Europe, I can still see American television and I see, see different networks. Um, so much of advertising and communications is still sort of the same old ideas run into the ground. Um, think different, be different. So with Details Magazine, there was an editor, as I said, who coming from London, an editor and a creative director, both came from London, they wanted to, um, they did not want to create a spin-off of anything that had existed before, before then. Um, they wanted to show that they were for um, this new younger generation of people and they were a reflection of them. Maybe, you know, your dream is to become a badge brand to people, that people would actually wear you, you know, wear your logo on their jean jacket or their baseball cap. It's, it be, it's, it's you, you embody them, you personify them. They feel such close affinity to who you are and what you're doing. Well, when you're launching details and you've got this magazine that's, 
kind of gritty and kind of frank about sexuality and the languages you know, vulgar compared to other Condé Nast magazines. And, um, you know, and you're also not assuming everybody out there is a, is a hetero young male who wants to drink a lot. It would, you know, details was one of the first magazines that just was like, talked about different sexual orientation. Everybody, everybody was included. And the models, you know, didn't look like these cookie cutter, um, beautiful guys and girls. No, they were real. And the clothes didn't all look like you were walking to a job on Madison Avenue or you lived in Greenwich, Connecticut. It was, it was just um, more accessible, more authentic. You know, authentic is everything now. So me on the marketing side, so that's not me making the magazine. That's, that's the editorial team. But I have to look at that and say, you know, the last thing you can do is sort of say, yeah, we're, we're hip, we're now, we're for you. It's just going to feel fake. Um, so what we did with details is on how to market it, um, we didn't want the message from details to be seen where you see the messages from GQ or Esquire or any traditional brand, any traditional lifestyle brand. So you would see details. We would put up, we did wild postering or advertising um, going around cities on dump trucks or um, in kind of gritty, not very pretty neighborhoods, but that were kind of where the pioneers were moving to. Um, we had up and we had concerts. We would stage concerts and parties on rooftops of buildings in neighborhoods that people might think are dangerous. But, you know, you get up there on the rooftop of this building and there's this amazing details party that everybody wanted to get invited to with one of the bands that everybody would know, not a big, you know, headliner Madison Square Garden band, but an underground band that was getting a lot of buzz. Um, it was, we were doing kind of influencer, everybody who was in our details advertising campaigns or um, who was representing the brand, we were kind of doing influencers before influencers happened. It, because it was, we were not using a typical TV star or um, a, a, a typical movie star. It was always people who were in the subculture who would become a details ambassador, a detail spokesperson. Um, we were the to getting involved, doing a, a sponsorship or a partnership, we picked, we picked beach volley, volleyball to be involved with rather than, again, kind of a bigger, more expensive, more inaccessible sport. We wanted to have like teenagers and 20-somethings in, in cities and suburbs um, playing beach volleyball and having a great time. So I would say that what we did do, we, we put the brand in unexpected, surprising places that were places you were not expecting to see legitimate corporate messaging. And, and when I say, you know, putting it on um, garbage trucks or other, other vehicles that cities used, um, we knew other brands didn't want to be there 
and that, that made us want details to be there. And I think what it ended up being, yes, still, we were doing advertising, we were doing marketing, people could still tell um, that this was a brand that was being promoted. But I think what we tried to get people to feel is um, we, are, we are not just another flavor of the month. We are, we are a little bit more in touch with the street we're a little more real, we're a little more authentic, we're a little more like you. And we never used those words, we never said those things, but but that's that's how we wanted people to feel, and it seemed like they did. And our concerts, the details parties um, on the rooftops of cities around the country, um, they became a very highly coveted ticket. Um, but still, we didn't want just society to be there. It was always... You know, if people would get rejected from a from a party uptown, we would love them to be at a party, a details party. So it almost sounds like the, that your vision was being the exception to the rule. Yeah, being a rule breaker, being I, I mean, a lot of the brands. Same with Cartoon Network. Our attitude. I mean, over Cartoon Network, we had a pirate flag flying. We always wanted to be, you know, we always wanted to zig when everybody else was zagging. We did not look, I mean, I would say with many of our cat, with many of my brands, we did not look to the competition to figure out what we should be doing. We didn't look at what the competitors were doing and say, okay, I guess we should be doing that. We really tried to do almost the opposite. And I think that was because, you know, now people call it, um, you know, um, an upstart brand or, you know, you're, you're trying to take on a category. Um, I think it's, it's, as I said, differentiation and, but also not just, not just looking different, but saying, but showing people your values are different. You have different values, especially when you're making a generational sale. Very few people, very few people in their generation want to follow in the footsteps of their parents or their parents' brands or their parents' lifestyle choices. They are looking when you're young, you know very well, you're trying to establish who you will be as an adult and, and what's important to you. And so I think with the, when I'm describe, describing what we did at Details, we just wanted to say um, without saying it, this isn't your, this isn't Martha Stewart. This isn't your mother's brand or your father's brand. This is not, this is not your grandfather's magazine. Um, we are, we are for you and we embody, we understand, or we will try to understand and listen to what's important to you. What's, what's the reality of your life, what you feel is important or challenging. And we'll, we'll focus on that. So those are kind of the media choices you make, um, and you you don't you don't follow the well trod path. So it almost sounds like you had this great mission, which is so interesting because obviously that's what you also learn everywhere. But I guess my question then is, uh, how were you guys so aware of who your customer was? I can imagine you know coming up at a brainstorming with the mission. Everybody, you know, zigs, you zag. 
uh, which, you know, then you know you're going to advertise on like dumpster trucks and stuff like that and vehicles that others yep. don't want. Um, that seems to make sense. How are you so aware of your target market? Like, how did you do your market research to the point that you were like, oh, I know which neighborhoods to go to? Yeah. Well, um, you just said the words, market research. So hopefully you've got people at the company who, if you've hired well, who are kind of tuned into your target audience. And again, in my career, I've worked on products. You know, I've had to sell evening $25,000 evening gowns. Well, I, I don't buy evening gowns. I don't wear evening gowns. You, you know, you won't always in your career work on brands that you use and you know really, really well and really intimately. But that's where, so some of it is going to be learning and, and research and studying and knowledge. Um, and then another part of it is empathy, is being empathetic. To the target audience. If you're working on a toothpaste, if you're working on diapers, and you're, um, uh, let's just say, with diapers, um, you're not, you're not a parent. Um, you don't have a baby, um, but you somehow have to connect with those people. You have to get them and what their pain points are. Um, you have to understand them as deeply and profoundly as if you were one of them and a, and a complete prototype of a new parent. So some of that is there will be people in the building who really, um, who know that audience, know that market. If you don't, if you're not from it, if those aren't your peeps, um, learn, go. I, I believe in quantitative research and qualitative research, meaning quantitative research, meaning big syndicated studies where you're, you're served, they're serving thousands of people um, and you're getting answers that are projectable. You know, for instance, um, you know, what's, when you get up in the morning, what's the first thing you drink? You know, how are you feeling? What are you looking for? What do you hope that coffee makes you feel? All of that stuff, you can get big answers to that. But then qualitative research, which is on a much more granular, intimate level, which can be one-on-one -on -one interviews, um, interviews in groups of people, five to 12, um, or, or a handful of people. But I do think there's never been a time, sometimes those are called focus groups, sometimes they're called one-on-ones. I can't imagine launching a product or a business and I've worked at places where literally they'll say, you know, we don't need you to do focus groups. We don't have the money. And when I say focus groups, I just mean any kind of qualitative research, telephone interviews, one-on-one, face-to-face, -on -one, -face, whatever. But there'll be companies who say, you know, we'll all work for them. You know, it's not important. We don't need to. We know enough, whatever. I've never done focus groups or one-on-one -on -one interviews or coffees or beers with small groups of people, target, target customers, and not learned something or not had an insight or an, gotten an answer that I really didn't expect. And when I thought, wow, I'm really glad I did this. Um, so I would say, you know, to your question, 
How do you understand the market? How do you get a hold on it? Um, I do think it's important. Yes, big studies and research, which brands are going up, which brands are going down, which things are important to a lot of people in this category. What are their pain points? You know, if you're talking about clothing, I worked on a men's clothing brand, a turnaround of a men's clothing brand, um, kind of a relaunch of it. And it was, it was a mass market um, men's clothing brand, meaning it wasn't high fashion. It was the kind of men's clothing brand you would find in Walmart, JCPenney, Sears, Kmart, et cetera, to Kohl's. Um, well, you know, guys don't really like to talk about fashion or they don't, I'm generalizing, but you talk to an average, you know, 40-something, 50-something-year-old man about how he picks his clothes. Yeah, they don't even use the word fashion. Um, so, but, but you know what? You get a few of them over beers and pizza and you start talking about their days and what they wear to work and how they pick it out and what, what problems they've had with clothing before and what about their clothing really pisses them off. Um, which, what's their favorite clothes? And those guys will talk to you about um, buttons or strings hanging off of their shirt or pants, you know, when they've got a big meeting and their pants look all wrinkled or et cetera, or, or zippers that break. They will, they can talk for hours about that stuff. They will even, if you throw a pile of shirts on a table or a pile of pants on a table, they will all have fun. Um, telling you which is their favorite and why. So um, I'm just giving an example. There's lots of, and I've done that, you know, um, gotten guys to go into a room, um, handed them $100, and I've set up a room that looks like the wall of JCPenney's men's department and said, okay, take the $100 and go pick out some clothes and then come back and tell me why you picked those. So these are, sorry for the lengthy answer, but these are, there are different ways to um, learn about your audience, not just syndicated research that's lots of data and thousands and thousands of because that's a kind of blunt instrument. But there are different ways to get people, and they don't need to be expensive, but to get people to come in and talk about your category, talk about your product, talk about your competition in ways that can be very illuminating. Um, and can maybe spark some really interesting ideas. I really, you really don't have to apologize about lengthy answers. I, I love the, the story side of it. And, and it's really clear, at least for me, it's really clear um, as you explain it. Um, because what makes uh, me happy in that answer is that in the past, when we've done, you know, market research, we've always focused on this like one person and getting to like getting coffees, getting really deep into the conversations that can last up to two hours. Uh, and so, so yeah, it's, it's really good that, uh, to know that, especially from a startup side who sometimes can't afford yeah. the huge focus groups with big data and, and everything. Um, so yeah, very interesting. I would say to you that point, um, Everything that you need to do, and I've worked on startups too, and I've worked with very small budgets, um, everything you need to do, there's a smart, cheap way to do it. And, and I didn't, you know, this, this men's brand I'm talking about, we didn't, we were, I, I joined venture capitalists that acquired, acquired a brand, 
to turn it around to take on Dockers. I mean, that was their mission. They had had incredible success um, doing acquisitions of Converse and the North Face. And their third brand was a Texas brand called Hager, old American brand called Hager, that they wanted to go up against Dockers. They really believed there was an opportunity in the market, which there was. Um, I didn't. You know, we were a we were a startup slash turnaround um, of a brand that didn't have, we didn't have really, really deep pockets to go hire really expensive agencies or really expensive research firms. So we hosted our own beer and pizza parties. And we, you know, went to a few cities and got average Joe's, because that was our customer, you know, a, 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 a working guy, a guy who, um, you know, he might sell insurance, he might be an engineer, um, he might run a landscaping company, whatever. Um, he may own an ice cream parlor, but he's a guy who cares about his work, um, wants to look good, um, cares about the impression that he makes. He's not, he, he's not going into boutiques um, looking for designer fashion, but he still cares about how he looks. Um, and, and so we said, Let's get that guy in after work um, in small group, maybe six of them sitting around a table and talk about their clothes and how they fit in with their life and, and how they see themselves. And I, I can tell you, if these guys started out shy, um, at the end, they were like exchanging phone numbers and, and walking out laughing, having had a great couple of hours and some pizza and some beer. And it didn't break the bank, um, but we, you know, and these some of these people in the back room listening behind the mirror in these things were creative people from New York and L.A. and San Francisco. And they don't know these, they don't necessarily know men like this. Um, so it was really important to have these, pe these guys talk about their lives and what their clothes meant to them. And that's why I say you may feel really plugged in, you know, you may be a middle-aged man yourself, but it doesn't mean you understand your customer or your target customer, or it doesn't, you may not know what's really bugging them about their clothes in this example. Um, and, but they'll give you an earful if you give them the chance. And then you can work on your R&D um, to make a superior product based on what you learn. So it not only helps the communications, it can really help your product development, all those things. Having said that, none of this is Bible. I would never take, I would never bank bet the farm on quantitative research. I would never bet the farm on qualitative research. I'd never bet the farm on my gut instincts or those of my peers. It's a combination. It's an, an amalgam of all of these things and, and paying attention to what's going on in the market and reading all the media, et cetera, et cetera. You, your job as a marketing person and creative person is to synthesize all that stuff. All of these things are tools or weapons in you coming up with great ideas and getting a deep understanding of doing a deep dive on your business. But you should be able to, as a marketing person, synthesize all of that and develop a plan of action from the combination. I, uh, yeah, I really love that. So in short, even if you have a low budget, you can research the data. Maybe there's like some studies already out there. You can do a beer and pizza night 
and then based on those also combine your gut feeling and you're pretty much good to go to start campaigning you you got it and i i mean the answer to your question you know um what if you don't have lots of money to spend on this stuff you never have enough money. <laughs> you know, I've told my teams who work for me, I'm like, okay, let's say we don't have enough money. You never have enough money. There just isn't, you know, there just isn't. I mean, maybe, I don't know, I've never worked on McDonald's or Ford. They, maybe they've got enough money, but you never feel like you have enough money. And in some cases, you really don't. And then, you know, you've got to outwit, outthink, and outplay the competition. And that just means be, be more clever. Get, get the answers you need, get the information you need, um, get, the, get the resources and the creativity you need, um, but none of it has to cost a fortune. You, there, there's always enough money if you're, if you're scrappy. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, so that then kind of brings me to the next question because that explains to me obviously how you handle different industries like, you know, a cartoon network versus uh, details magazine uh, to switching to Warner Brothers and obviously like going to Versace, all that fashion stuff. Uh, but uh, so um, let's kind of then go to the next step that I'm very interested by. Um, you've done your market research, you understand the industry, you have a bunch of people in the team who are feeding into this model of like you understanding who you're targeting. Um, how do the campaigns happen then, um, especially if you're going into a completely new industry, like you were going from Details Magazine to Cartoon Network? What, what, how do you even come up with the idea of putting something on a dumpster truck? I, I feel like if I was sitting in a brainstorming session, I wouldn't even think of an idea like that. Yeah, well, it's also... Um it can be hard to present an idea like that to your <laughs> boss because the, the more you are diverging from the norm or what's expected or what's traditionally done, the more internal selling you've got to do. Um, but I think in that case, you know, when we really decided to um, zag to their zig, um, I think everybody, everybody on, on board felt that we needed to do things differently and and not just to say it but to be it and and i would say the times the details you know the the 90s were the times that we were beginning to see what now is everything which is heritage authenticity trust you know as i said in the old days these companies um They'd make their advertising campaigns and their press releases, and it was fake. It was contrived. It was somebody, it was something, something, somebody on Madison Avenue, wherever, Venice, California, whatever, Chicago, um, who's professional wrote. Um, but now people want to see, want you to be more vulnerable as a brand, more open and honest, um, warts and all. Um, they want to know what you're made of and what you care about. And so, and they demand that. So that's super polished. Um, those, those kind of, even, even now, the big companies that are spending lots of money on their campaigns, many of them are still trying to make it feel a little homemade or with rough edges because being super, super polished 
and um, everything being such a big production, etc., doesn't work so well anymore. People see through it. You know, the audiences that are out there these days are the savviest audience, the smartest audience that's ever existed. So they've seen it all. They've been hyped. They've been marketed to. They've been spun. They've been lied to. They've been let down. Um, and so they're looking with a more cynical eye. And anything that feels really corporate-y um, or really surfacy doesn't sit well. And obviously I'm making generalizations, you know, but it's particularly with younger people. So that's when you get, but, but the funny thing that's happening now with, with, with audiences is, you know, in the years ago, things used to trickle down, um, from our parents or our grandparents. And then we pick up things trickle up now. Um, Teenagers and 20-somethings start it, start to feel a certain way, start to think a certain way, start to, quote-unquote, shop their values, um, start to buy brands that and support companies that are aligned with their values. And that actually starts to trickle up to their parents and grandparents. So older people are now behaving more like younger people in the way that they look at information, even though they might have accepted corporate kind of messages and, you know, oh, let us tell you how much we care about you. Our company really cares about you and your family's well-being. Well, to a young person, that sounds incredibly fake and a little repugnant. Now to older people, that stuff in the 60s, 70s, 80s, that used to fly, you know, but that, whether people really believed it or not, but it used to work. It doesn't work anymore. Everybody's become more jaded and cynical. So I think, again, kind of talking about your question about campaigns and how do you make how do you make campaigns these days? Um, we've developed campaigns during my career internally. Um, almost everything we did at Cartoon Network and Details, for instance, we did. We were startups. Even though we were part of bigger companies, we didn't have big budgets. But also, as I said, we had a pirate flag flying above the building. We didn't want to call um, a big advertising agency. I and mean, we interviewed some. We worked with a couple, um, not, big, not big agencies, but smaller creative shops. But we just knew we didn't want to, we didn't want to work with corporate entities where we would be just another, another brand, another piece of business they'd won um, that they could send out a press release about. And we wouldn't get their best thinking. Um, but maybe they wouldn't really even get us and what we were trying to do because they were so used to working on the big Procter and Gambles and General Motors, whatever, Domino's Pizza. You know, we just thought we, we're not of a corporate machine. We don't want anything about our brand or our brand personality to feel corporate. Why are we going to go hire a big ad agency or a big PR agency to work with us? And, and, you know, and they'll go, oh yeah, you know, it's that funky, weird magazine details 
or that kooky, silly network, Cartoon Network, you know. Um, that's a bunch of wacky kids over there. Um, no, we really wanted people to, we wanted to celebrate our difference. We felt, we felt like our DNA was different. Uh, and I'll give one example, and I'm sorry. No, no, please continue. I'll give one example at Cartoon Network. So I got hired to Cartoon Network. I moved, I packed up from New York. I moved to Atlanta. We, I walked into my office. Um, I had a gigantic wall. And I think in Cartoon Network internally, these were the very early days, we knew we got a big library of animation. You know, Ted had been brilliant of, of buying Hanna-Barbera and MGM and all their cartoons. So you did, there weren't only the famous ones like Scooby or, or the Flintstones, um, but there were also lesser known ones like Top Cat, Squidly Diddly, who was an uh, octopus wearing a sailor's cap, um, uh, Heckle and Jekyll, um, Tom and Jerry. Oh, you know, we got this, this mix. And so I think the, we could have done two things that would have been pretty easy. Um, one would have been um, to make a network that would have been, to make a brand that would have been retro. You know, really kind of for baby boomers, kind of just, yeah, yeah we don't have Ren Simpy and we don't have Beavis, Beavis and Butthead. We've got all the cartoons you loved as a kid. Um, and now you can introduce them to your child. So we, we could have just gone with, um, you know them, you love them, retro, vintage. Or we could have gone for, and speaking of focus groups, I, I had very early on, we did focus groups with kids that were like nine to 12, I think. And the reason why we got kids of that age is because we just thought little kids will be easier. You know, really little kids were gonna be very easy because they just love watching cartoons and colors and shapes and animals. Nine to 12, like 10, 11 to 12 year old kids who are kind of smarter and savvier, they were gonna be, they were gonna be a little bit more of a challenge to get them to watch like the Flintstones or the Jetsons, something that clearly they could look at it and say, this is old. Like this, you know, this, these were the days of MTV and, you know, these kids were not going to be saying, okay, th these people riding around on dinosaurs, you know, when they'd seen Jurassic Park, it was all going to seem kind of naive. So we said, let's do focus groups with them. And, you know, we were showing them the cartoons, samples of the cartoons. And then we said to the kids, these 10, 11, 12 year old, like boys in this group, you know, so what do you think of these shows? Who do you think this network is for? And the kids were like, I think it's for my grandmother. <laughs> like not even for their mother. They were like, um, you know, I think my grandmother would like that. Um, and we were like, oh God, this is going to be hard. So. So the other thing we could have done is said, let's be for little kids. Let's just be, it's kind of sweet, it's naive, it's innocent, silly fun. Let's just go after, you know, one-year-old to six-year-old. Safe viewing for little kids. We thought we had a much bigger idea with Cartoon Network. Um, and, and we did not, neither of those things appealed to us. And one of the things I did, my one of my first weekends at, at my new job in my new office was I had this big white wall. And to me, the thing, like I thought those cartoons were incredibly cool. 
and I, cause I love pop culture and, you know, and I think even though they were of an era there, there's something, I mean, now we know how cool Scooby-Doo can be. And now you've got, um, now, you know, teenagers now look at that stuff. Well, a lot of them, some of them are using substances while they watch Cartoon Network, but, but, you know, in their dorm rooms with their friends laughing hysterically, but, um, and we, we knew we had that audience too, but I think there was something, it was pop art. It was pop culture. It was, it was, yes, it was of a moment, but it was eternal. And so I hired for my big white wall in my new office, I got a local painter in Atlanta and I said, can you come and paint Jane Jetson's head? But can you paint it as Andy Warhol would have painted it? Do a Warhol on Jane Jetson. Like Andy Warhol had done Marilyn Monroe and Elizabeth Taylor and Elvis. Well, I wanted this guy to do an Andy Warhol version of Jane Jetson. And to me, you know, it's, it's a little difficult to articulate, but for me, what I was trying to do was a little of a pop culture mashup, which is, it's old, but it's new. And it's kind of corny, but it's hip. And it's for old and it's for young. I thought a lot of our stuff, like the best cartoon to a lot of people is Bugs Bunny. Because Bugs Bunny was never a kid's cartoon. Bugs Bunny, if you watch Bugs Bunny as an adult, you're picking up completely different references than the kids are. There's sure there's lots of silly manic stuff going on in the foreground, but but Bugs Bunny is throwing off pop culture references or pol political references or or battle between the sexes references. There's it's operating on multiple layers. And we, you know, and so we felt Cartoon Network should be that. We're not going to be from little kids. We're not going to be for baby boomers. We're pop culture. We're pop art. There's tons of stuff that's going on in here, way more than meets your meets the eye. And I felt that when I got my team in on Monday morning to see the Andy Warhol Jane Jetson, you know, everybody walked in and they're like, oh my God, that's amazing. I mean, it was huge. It was a big mural. But it was also, you know, for me, um, it was, I could point to something and say, that's what we're going to do with Cartoon Network. Like we're, it's going to be a little ironic and, and we're going to have attitude and it's going to be very knowing and we're going to be pulling pop culture references. The cartoons themselves may feel a little dated or may not feel so, so modern, but the network, the attitude, the network itself will be the past and the present and the future and trendy and square and um, and we'd be pulling from country music or hip hop or it's R and B. The references would be all over, but you'd feel watching Cartoon Network whether you were a little kid, or whether you were their parent, or whether you were in between a teenager or twenty something. We're talking to you, like this is not for your little brother or sister not exclusively for your little brother or sister or exclusively for your baby boomer mother or father were for you. And, and it ended up being not a network for little kids, 
um, not a network for, for people in their 40s and 50s. We got them all. Um, and it ended up being actually um, nighttime on Cartoon Network was the most, ex had the highest ratings of any network for teenagers. So it, and it be and became, as I told you, a lifestyle brand. So I think that's the other thing is when you're thinking about your campaign, I gave that example of a Warhol Jane Jetson, but we, you know, it is, we're not going to be one thing. We're going to be a mashup. We're going to be, we're going to be smart enough to, to know that you'll get it. Like, we're not going to talk down to you. We are going to, we're going to be smart. We're going to be clever. We're going to be funny. We're going to be ironic. We're going to be irreverent. And, and we're not going to baby, baby, serve this, spoon feed this to you. We're just going to assume that you're clever enough um, and smart enough you're going to pick up on it. And they did. And so we would go out and talk to people about Cartoon Network and they would just say, it's, it's you know, Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins asked to be on Cartoon Network, and he was. Michael Stipe from REM. I mean, these are rock stars who all came on Cartoon Network because they just thought it was actually cool and hip and funny and had a lot of attitude, and they thought it was them. So that's just a little bit of example. Sometimes, you know, with Versace, um, in, in luxury, um, you know, when you're working with Donatella Versace, um, they do not do that. <laughs> um, they want to work with the most expensive photographers um, a, on something very high concept because in luxury, you are, you know, with fashion and perfume, you're selling a dream. Um, when, when somebody, you know, I've had people... You know, our handbags at Versace or other luxury brands I've worked on are thousands of dollars. Um, our dresses, you know, a simple black dress can be $10,000. And I've had people, you know, say, hey, Stephen, is that worth $10,000 or evening gown for twenty five? I'm like, if that's what you'll pay for it, that's what it's worth. Um, so it's, uh, you know, and I'm not being sarcastic. It's a dream. It's a fantasy. It's who you want to be. If you're somebody who wants the very best, um, if you're somebody who wants people to know you can afford the very best, all of these things. Um, if you're somebody who's unstinting on quality, um, if you're somebody who would never buy H&M or Zara or something because you worry about where it's made, how it's made, was anybody exploited? A lot of reasons go into paying the very highest of price points. And so luxury brands, this isn't to say that they'll always do this, but generally for the campaigns you are working with, you know, a Steven Mizell or a Merton Marcus or a Bruce Weber or whomever, um, and you'll go out and do a shoot and it will definitely be seven figures um, to create your campaign before you buy a single bit of media, you will have spent over a million dollars, sometimes way over. And... Um, I'm, I'm speaking in generalizations, obviously, but that's the world of luxury. So where we, where, and startups, you might be scrappy or work or just hire a copywriter and an art director and say, let's go, let's go do this and let's have a great idea and, and be very creative. Um, at the highest end, 
Those typically, those brands are still spending a lot of money. It's a collaboration between a fashion designer or, or in another category. If you have a very powerful leader and they're the visionary, oftentimes they want to be the architect or creator of your campaign. But then you might, you know, if you've hired a big expensive photographer or you're working with a big ad, ad agency and, and um, an expensive production company, and it's a big shoot for multiple days, there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Um, you will not have the kind of freedom that I discussed that, that you sometimes have on an upstart brand or a renegade brand. There are a lot of people around the table, but that doesn't mean you have to go do the ordinary or the expected or that your voice or opinion doesn't matter. You can't be intimidated. It matters, you know, bring your strategic thinking um, and, and don't be shy about it. That you've actually covered a question that I was uh, wanting to ask uh, partially, which is a bit more of a practical question regarding budgets. Uh, when, I mean, it's been a while now, but when you were doing these brands, launching these upstart brands all the way in the beginning, these are brands that are now literally part of society. What kind of budgets are we talking about during a campaign? Are we talking, like you said, small budgets? Are we talking like a thousand bucks? I can't imagine it was a thousand bucks versus obviously the high end. You said seven figures. Yeah. Um, well, I would say, you know, I, I still consult for companies. So I just finished um, consulting with Tamara Mellon, who's the woman who created Jimmy Choo, um, who now has launched her own brand. Um, and so I still, I'm still having these kinds of conversations, still in these meetings. Um, as I said, I, I decided I'm an American uh, by birth and by passport. But I, after um, Versace, I decided I wanted to stay in Europe and live in Europe. And that's the amazing thing about these days, especially I think hopefully there will be a post-COVID world. And um, in this new world, I think many, many more people will be able to live where they want to live and do their job from where they want to. So I think, I think, and these are the kinds of things that are in the news all the time. But for me, I still consult and work with American companies, even though I live on a mountaintop in Italy. Um, and so as far as budgets, things like that, you asked about $1,000. No. If you only have a thousand dollars, if you only have a thousand dollars, I don't know if you're ready to launch a new business. Uh, to be honest, so so look. Um, having said that, um, word of mouth is free, and word of mouth um, is the very best form of marketing. Is the is the most credible form of marketing. So, um, and, and yes, if you launch a fabulous product um, or, or you open a new shop or a new restaurant or a cafe, and you may say, literally, we only have a few thousand dollars or something like that, um, you're not gonna be going out and buying Facebook campaigns or, or buying media pages and magazines or being on the, the big websites or getting in Google search. That's not possible for a few thousand dollars. So, so all I would say is, while not, while not getting 
too much into budgets under $10,000 or $20,000. You can do it. Um, understand it's going to be largely driven by PR, which can also be free um, if you don't hire a PR agency or things like that. But that's those are, um, just very quickly, um, the gatekeepers. You know, in the old days, sorry, I keep referring to the old days, but anyway, things really have changed and the landscape really has changed. Um, in the last 10 or 20 years. So there really were old days and they're not so long ago. But, but in the days of sort of when magazines, newspapers, TV were kind of the media, um, there were gatekeepers. And these would be the people you'd send your press release to or send your product to. You try to get an editor to write about it. Um, you try to get the newspaper to do a feature about it. Um, maybe you'd get lucky enough and find a celebrity who would wear it and get photographed. They were the gatekeepers. Um, those would be people, everybody would be sending their press releases and photos about their new product to the same group of people, whoever, whoever ran the media in your category and trying to get them to cover it. Um, and by and large, it was, it was low cost. If you, if you had a really compelling story to tell something or genuinely innovative, Writers, editors, they need content. So they would be on the lookout for who's got something fabulous, or if it's fashion, or if it's cars, who's doing something new, who's doing something exciting, who's doing something that's gonna look amazing in a photo. Um, so it didn't, you know, but the gatekeepers have changed now. As we all know, um, now we're in the days of influencers. Um, people are not relying on Anna Wintour of Vogue to tell them what to do or not buy. Um, it's, it's Instagram, it's Facebook, it's influencers. It's who are these people with these incredible followings? Now, I would say, um, it, as, as the dawn of influencers began, a lot of people were saying, oh, thank God, you know, I can work with these influencers, these regular Joes and Jennies. I don't have to go to Vogue or Vanity Fair or, um, you know, another Martha Stewart living or something and pay $100,000 to have a, buy a page in the magazine. I can just be working with these much more accessible, um, cheaper influencers. Well, uh, fast forward to today, those influencers have now become big media companies. Um, and the big ones are very expensive to work with. Um, and people look at influencers differently now because people know influencers are often not just promoting something because they discovered it themselves and they absolutely love it and they can't wait to tell you about it. Um, they're doing it because they just got a check for $25,000 from the brand. So even that now has become a little bit more jaded. But, but so back to the multi-thousand dollars, you're probably also not going to be working with the most powerful influencers. But all the more reason to have a clever, scrappy idea um, and to be obviously using your, you know, I, I always sit down with my teams 
and I say, I, I, I divide all of the assets into three categories, owned, earned, and paid. Owned are is every, and I know a lot of your listeners already know this stuff. I won't belabor it because I know we're, we're getting towards the end. But, but the things you own and you control, um, your own website, your own press releases, your own social media footprint, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those of your employees, um, maybe your own town, your own storefront, your own home. Um, these are things you own. By and large, they're free or next to free to use. Things you might print out and hand out. Um, if, uh, all of that stuff is the cheapest and the stuff over which you have the most control. Earned, those are gatekeepers. Editors, writers, bloggers, influencers. Paid is the first time you have to open up your wallet, take money out to, say, buy media, buy TV time, buy Google, um, buy Facebook. Use them in that order. Ex fully exploit, brilliantly exploit, owned before you go on to earned, etc., etc. So I would say for smaller budgets, you're going to rely on owned. You're going to rely on wacky ideas that you hope will break through and you're going to and you're going to rely on word of mouth meaning people having some sometimes it starts with friends and family but people having a great experience with your brand or your product um, who people who you've told your story to really well and really effectively so that people can become your brand ambassadors not getting paid but because they like to tell other people about great things they've just experienced or something really interesting they've just heard or learned and that is the ripple effect and that done well with a great product with a great story can cost you only thousands of dollars sometimes if you if you strike gold because they are going out and they're doing the footwork for you they're doing the communication for you and as I said there's nothing better and there's nothing people trust more than hearing about something from a friend or a family member so that's that's for lower budgets when you don't have the multi-million to go out like Donatella Versace wants to, um, you're going to rely on word of mouth. You're going to rely on PR, but you really need to rely on a great product with a very clear reason for being and very compelling storytelling and hopefully um, breakthrough creative that makes people stop on their feed. What's a, a more realistic budget then? So when you were working with a cartoon network or launching new brands, like what kind of budgets are we talking about then? Well, when, well, well, with television, again, with television, you've got your owned, you know, interesting with TV networks because TV channels, media has the opportunity to talk about itself a lot for free. So, and with Ted Turner, we could not only do stuff on our own air for free, 
talk about us, tell us, tell you, um, which is what we would do a lot, which is called promos in TV. Um, but also, or in YouTube or any, any um, video, anything in video. Um, but we also can work, can advertise for free on brother and sister networks. So for Cartoon Network, I mean, even though the CNN viewer might not be the typical Cartoon Network viewer, we could use anybody else in the company. And this, this always happens if you're a company with more than one brand, always look within your walls to say, is there anything you could do for me? Um, there's also things called barter, you know, which is sometimes you get advertising or media or promotion because you exchange, you make an exchange. No money changes hands, but you've each got something the other is interested in um, and, and you can exchange. But, but I would say with those larger companies, budgets would, would generally start in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and bigger companies, you know, they've got, they don't necessarily have se seven figures, but they, they, will, they may well be able to bring together 70,000, 80,000 to spend on marketing slash advertising. And again, you know that the free things or the next to free things are, are what's going to be the big drivers. Um, but you've got, you know, you've got the better part of six figures or, or more um, to get out there and do some paid, but paid that's very well chosen, paid that's very well targeted. You're not going to buy television because television isn't targeted enough. Um, so you're going to, you want to be lazy. You've got a limited budget. You need to be even more focused. And you, and that goes back to our earlier conversation. You need to know your audience really well. What media do they consume? Where are they usually spending their time? Um, them and people like them, because that's also very important. And then, and then spend your precious dollars and cents only on things where you know your prospective customer lives. And, and it's media they're looking at. TV or anything like that, those are mass vehicles. Very inefficient. Can be very powerful, but you're speaking, you're getting a lot of waste. A lot of those people watching, um, a lot of expensive things like that. I mean, that's why Facebook and, you know, we won't talk about it today, but, you know, Facebook and Google, um, almost everybody is doing business with them. Um, it's very hard not to. I'm talking about bigger companies. I mean, almost if you've got a business or brand, you certainly need a Facebook page and an Instagram page. Um, but it's getting more and more expensive. It's getting less and less effective and cost effective. Um, it's crazy costly. And so you're trying to come up with a social media strategy that doesn't involve you paying a huge monthly fee to Facebook um, because that's a losing proposition. You mentioned we're not going to cover Facebook and Google. What what did you want to, uh, what would you say about those things then? Well, look, there are obviously with, with Google, um, your website, your communications, I don't need to tell all of your listeners. Um, you know, we live in a digital world. And so you need to make sure that everything you do is easy to find digitally. Um, that people who might be interested in your product won't have a 
won't have a challenging time to find you um, with when, when they do a search, a generic search. And again, if it's if you're if it's cost sensitive, I know getting really specific with searches. Uh, but 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 I, I want to say, even with this, with Google, know your audience enough, know your product enough, know your category enough to understand the choreography of their purchase decision. What words would they be using? Where would they be going to get information about products like yours? Um, you, you need to understand that. I've seen a lot of people spend a lot of money wastefully on, on, on you know, buying search words and stuff, which their, their target customers wouldn't even normally use. Um, and so, so and Facebook, obviously, Understand with Google and Facebook um, your audience and your affinity groups. And by that, I mean people who would be interested in your product. Um, what's their life like? What kind of music do they listen to? Um, where, where do they spend their days online? What kind of TV shows would they watch? What are their favorite movies? Um, how do they feel about social causes? Um, are they, are they super progressive? Are they very conservative? Are they super religious? Well, those are all groups. That's, those are affinities. When I said people like, um, people like them, understand the affinities for your, you know, the socio-cultural affinities. Try to get into their heads. What's important to them? What's their lifestyle like? then you can kind of be where they live in their digital lives. And you can begin maybe at low or no cost um, to be introducing yourselves to those affinity groups so that without making expensive buys on Facebook, um, you can begin talking about yourselves to people who will genuinely be interested. So obviously, Facebook is incredibly powerful, as is Google. I will say, and, and the big brands with lots of money to throw around, they're on it, they're using it. But as I said, everybody is finding that costs are going up um, to, to use them. They are becoming less effective with every additional dollar that you spent. We all have to find new ways to navigate the digital landscape. Um, and fi find ways to be cost-effective and really innovate. Because as we know, everybody wants to have a grassroots brand, a, a, the brand that didn't have to spend $50 million to get your attention. People discovered it. Well, a lot of times they are discovering it in their digital lives because somebody else is talking about it on Facebook or, or Instagram. Somebody else is wearing it. Somebody else is eating it. Somebody else who they trust or admire is checking in at the front desk of that hotel, et cetera, et cetera. These are, our, these are now our referring communities and um, penetrating and infiltrating those, uh, those, those referring communities can be very powerful and it doesn't need to be super expensive. We're actually uh, getting close to the end and we're barely covering your career because <laughs> it's so interesting. Uh, <laughs> 
Uh-oh. Actually, we did cover my career in an indirect way. You know, we've talked about a lot of it. And I'm sorry if my answers went on too long. No, I, I love it because it's actually filled with knowledge. Um, so we're going to skip a couple of things, mostly the television stuff, even though Sony could be very interesting yep. and everything. I, I still really quickly, as we're nearing the end, do want to quickly hear how did you end up with Versace? Uh, we don't get many guests that are in the fashion industry. It's so different from the TV industry in my mind. Um, could you right. quickly go through the story of like how you ended up in Versace and what, what your time was like there? Yeah, uh, and I'll, I'll cover this in the time that we have left. So luxury is a great business um, because rich people always have money. So we can all see the news. Um, even during these difficult times uh, where some businesses sadly are going out of business or people are challenged, luxury brands just keep on chugging. Um, so, so that's just a sad fact that there are, there are some rich people in the world and they can continue to spend their money however they like. However, in luxury, we love those people. <laughs> they are our customers. Um, actually, they're our clients. Um, I have always loved the fashion business. Part of the reason I always loved the entertainment business, um, it's image, it's creative, everything you're working on, everything you touch, every conversation you have um, is about art and beauty and imagination. So that really speaks to me. It was unusual to go from media and entertainment into luxury and fashion, having not done it. Um, because I will say, even though I was able to jump into Milan and become chief marketing officer of Versace, that's an unusual move. Um, the the head, headquarters uh, for the luxury fashion business are generally um, Milan and Paris. Um, America has a luxury business, but, you know, it's, it's really hard to come up with great American luxury brands in fashion. Um, you know, Ralph Lauren isn't one and Michael Kors isn't one. And, you know, there are brands like Oscar de Laurent and Carolina Herrera. They're smaller. So the Americans just doing, don't do it as well as the French and the Italians. And there's a long, long legacy of the maison, the atelier, um, and everything being handcrafted and precious. Luxury is about being precious and rare. If everybody has it, as you've seen with a coach bag or a Michael Kors bag, suddenly it goes out of fashion in two seconds. If, if somebody who's got a Michael Kors bag, who's a luxury customer, and she goes by a bus stop and everybody's carrying a Michael Kors bag, sorry, I don't mean to beat up on Michael Kors. Michael <laughs> Kors bought Versace. Um, but I don't mean to beat up. I mean, you know, all brands, a lot of brands, Tommy Hilfiger, a lot of brands who get really big, really fast, have to grapple with this. Um, how do we get really big without getting bad? Or how do we get really big? How do we keep a luxury brand and let it get really big and really successful without becoming a mass brand? Um, you lose your exclusivity, so there are rules. I was invited to come to Milan um, to meet Donatella Versace um, for a very strange reason. Um, yeah, Versace had been looking for a chief marketing officer for a while. And again, I've worked in Condé Nast, which is a fashion company, and I worked on a fashion magazine, and I'd worked with fashion brands. I'd never worked at a fashion brand, and I was not a fashion guy. I mean, I, I can't pretend I, I was of that world. Um, but uh, a recruiter, a fashion recruiter, sent my CV to Donatella, 
um, who was who was another person like Ted Turner and some of the other people I've worked for. She did not want somebody who'd worked at 50 other fashion brands and just kind of was going to come in and do the same old, same old. She is bold and a risk taker. Um, and so she was willing to consider people outside of fashion. And sometimes this happens, you know, d never give up hope. Um, if you if you have your heart set on an industry, go for it and get into something tangential to that industry. I always tell people, don't think about your next job. Think about two jobs from now. Where do you want to end up ultimately and make your next job a leapfrog job? So you're tangential to your dream company or your dream industry. So Donatella saw my CV and um, Details was her favorite magazine. Um, Cartoon Network was her and her kids. She's got two kids. Um, her and her two kids' favorite TV channel to watch. And another network I worked on, E! Entertainment Television, known as the Kardashians Network, um, was Donatella's personal favorite. So, favorite television channel. So, um, she knew brands that I'd worked on. She loved brands that I'd worked on, three of them. She knew the work that I had done or the work we had done on those brands. And she found it and she felt um, they were pop culture. They were trendy. They were cool. They were funny. They were all the things she wants her brand to stand for and that she is personally. Um, and so she invited me to come to Milan from L.A. for a meeting. Um, and I was at E at the time. And so I really got the call and they said, you know, would you be free to go to Milan to meet Donatella Versace? And I literally was looking at the phone saying, who did you think you were calling? Uh, you know, like what? And even as I was almost boarding the plane to Milan, you know, my friends in LA were not believing it. It's like, uh-huh. Yeah. You're going to Milan to meet yeah. Donatella Versace. <laughs> but I'm like, I think I am. And honestly, what I thought would be the world's shortest interview. And she would look at me and say, who is this guy? And whoever thought I'd be interested in him. They ended up keeping me in Milan for another day and another day. And I met the board of directors and I met, um, and I met the family and I, they had me do presentations in my hotel room at night. And on my fourth or fifth day in Milan, um, they, she said to the lawyer, don't let him leave without signing a contract. So I literally, and I mean, we would have conversations not too unlike the kind you and I are having now, um, talking about all this kind of stuff, because that's what smart business people want to talk about, all of this stuff. And she decided, because I guess she and I clicked, but I guess because of the way I talked about brands or creative or media or people, or all of the above. Um, she liked the way I thought, um, sort of the same way Ted Turner talked and some of my other bosses talked. They just thought, you know, we think you're smart and we like the way you think about things and we, you know, we can teach you the business, um, but we think you'll bring something added value to us, something we don't have. And I hope I did. So I took, I signed the contract. I got on a plane back to Los Angeles to sell my house 
to pack up all my things, to learn Italian, and to fly to Milan and start my new life. And so I guess that, that wraps it up. But that was how I got to Italy, and that was how I ended up working with Donatella Versace for six and a half years as chief marketing officer. Um, a great privilege. And I guess that's, that's as good a place as any to end my story yeah, for today. I agree. Uh, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Um, is there anything you'd like to share, maybe some last words uh, for the audience? Also, I want to roll out the red carpet for you. Do you have anything to promote? Where can people find you? Can you share some stuff? Um, well, to your audience, I, I hope that I've been a little bit of a proof um, that you shouldn't give up hoping and trying to do um, what you dream of doing. Um, the, the sorts of things like, well, you don't have the right qualifications or you're not this kind of person or you didn't study that kind of thing or you don't know this man or this woman. Um, oftentimes, it, it, it only takes someone who will give you a chance, um, take, a, take a chance on you. And your job is to make it feel to them like they're taking no chance at all. Um, that even though you weren't the person they thought they would fill the job with, um, you're a person they'd very much like to fill the job with. Um, because again, you're gonna be bring something new and fresh. I've been told um, that people think I come across as passionate or enthusiastic. I think that's something you can never um, forget is your amount of excitement about something. I mean, don't act hysterical, but everybody wants somebody who's gonna be enthusiastic and positive um, sitting around the conference room table. So that's another, another one of my secret weapons. But, but anyway, I hope I've been proof and evidence um, that you can get into whatever category you want to, be smart about it, um, plan your career path, and um, make people feel like you've got a lot to offer, and then, and then give it to them. And, that, and that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I can be found on LinkedIn. Um, if my name isn't spelled in the information, it's S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Kronkota, C-R-O-N-C-O-T-A. And it's been a pleasure. Yeah, you'll definitely be mentioned uh, on the thumbnail and everything with name. Thank you so much. And on that note, looking close. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. If you like this episode, you can check out our most recent one here. And if you haven't already, make sure you click here to subscribe and see the next one. But if you're interested in more tips and tricks, then make sure to join our Facebook group where you can find thousands of like-minded people and you get direct access and support to any business question from the entire startup funding event team.